This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. Many of the biggest questions surrounding this year's Supreme Court term don't have to do with the cases they decided. They're more about the people who are deciding them. What's the dynamic on the 6-3 majority conservative court? What role does Chief Justice John Roberts play anyway? And what will happen with liberal justice Stephen Breyer, who turns 83 in August? Many progressive voices are calling on him to step down so that President Biden can get a replacement through a majority Democratic Senate. Supreme Court reporter and columnist Linda Greenhouse says those calls may have backfired, with Breyer not wanting to make a political decision. But Greenhouse, who's covered the court for decades for the New York Times, says the court's days of being above politics are largely over. In part two of our conversation, Greenhouse considers whether a smaller, even-numbered court might help build more consensus. And she gives us some more of her ideas about the possibility of changing the size of the Supreme Court. She also looks ahead at the next court term, which is shaping up to be momentous. Linda Greenhouse has a new book coming out this fall. It's titled Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. We talked for a live, interactive Connecticut Mirror Zoom event. I highly encourage you to go back and listen to part one of our conversation in our last podcast. And we'll start this show with a question from our audience. William says, I think studies have shown that conservative justices move left once they're on the court. Is that conventional wisdom holding true in your experience? That is conventional wisdom, and there have been some interesting studies on it, and it was true in the old days. I think it's not very likely to be true in these days when every conservative justice has been vetted uh, to the fairly well by the Federalist Society, served up to the White House by the Federalist Society. The, ju- the Republican-appointed justices who tended to move left um, over time, say over beginning around the middle of the 20th century, tended to be um, individuals who had spent their careers outside of Washington, um, hadn't worked in the federal government, hadn't paid those kind of dues, uh, were not such known quantities, were appointed for one reason or another that, that had to do with things other than an absolute guaranteed ideological position on this, that, or the other thing. Um, but the, uh, uh, the whole nomination confirmation process has become so ideologically inflected that I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of surprises going forward. Is there something that, that happens internally once people become part of this group of justices that we don't see that actually allows them to to change in some way from the person that is put on the stand in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee answering questions as though they have, you know, been vetted by the Federalist Society? I mean, is there something that happens when they're actually in that in that chamber talking amongst their colleagues that that does shift positions and minds? Well, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, that's who sort of engage in the pop psychology out of my silo. But I think the reason why uh, those justices who have made their lives outside the beltway who come to Washington in midlife uh, as Supreme Court justices, and it's got to be an experience that kind of shakes you up, shakes up your priors. Maybe you learn something. 
Um, I think that's that very scenario that you posited is why uh, you really see a uh, there's a dichotomy between um, among Republican appointed justices from the middle of the 20th century. Those who have drifted left have been the outsiders, have been um, David Souter, Harry Blackman, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy to a degree. Those who haven't changed have been the inside the beltway players who make it to the court. I mean, John Roberts' uh, commute when he was promoted from the DC circuit to the Supreme Court grew by about five blocks, right? He had spent his entire life in DC. Sam Alito has never cashed a paycheck that wasn't written by the federal government, right? So Clarence Thomas was, I mean, <laughs> we all remember his pinpoint Georgia, you know, origin story, but basically he spent his entire life as a federal bureaucrat. So, um, you know, that that's the difference. And I think now we're seeing people who are much more likely to hang on to the ideas that put them forward as plausible Supreme Court candidates in, in the first place. I, I apologize if you've used that line about Alito before, and I just hadn't heard it, but that's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> I have to say I've used it before, and nobody... Nobody has ever contradicted me. <laughs> um, you actually wrote a lovely piece about Justice Sotomayor uh, called The Truth Teller of the Supreme Court. And I'm just going to quote here. It says, on today's Supreme Court, she's fated to be on the losing side of many of the issues she cares most about. So her project, it seems to me, is to make legible for these times and in times to come the context for the court's decisions and the consequences likely to flow from them. Can you explain a bit more about why you chose to write up her, about her specifically uh, on the court? Yeah, because she specifically has been the one uh, calling the court out. There were a series of um, death penalty cases during this term, people may remember, that um, Attorney General Barr announced that the government, federal government was going to start executing people, which it had not done for a couple of decades. And there was an amazing string of 13 federal executions. There were more federal executions in 2020 than there were state executions. I think I'm right on that. If I'm wrong, I'm just off by one or two. Um, so, you know, the court was kind of the Trump's enabler in that uh, if, if the lower court had granted a stay, the Supreme Court would vacate the stay. If the inmate came seeking a stay, the Supreme Court would deny the stay. And Justice Sotomayor was dissenting in these cases. And finally, in the last one, which was um, in January, I mean, it was two months after Trump lost for re-election. He was still executing people. This was a case, an uh, individual called Higgs, I think. Um, she wrote a dissenting opinion that named all of these people who had been executed. It was sort of, you know, it was her version of, of Black Lives Matter, say their names. She said their names and she put it in U.S. reports, the, the, the formal, you know, the, the formal record of, of Supreme Court activity. And I just thought it was pretty remarkable. So um, that's why I wrote that piece. We're going to get back to some of the court cases from this term in just a second, but people have a lot of questions about other people on the court. And one of the questions that obviously you've been thinking about and a lot of people are thinking about is whether Justice Breyer 
is going to or should retire. Uh, Judy asks a question. Does Professor Greenhouse expect that the liberals uh, urging Justice Breyer to retire may cause him to act contrary to those strongly stated urgings? So what do you think Justice Breyer is going to do and when? Well, I think, I mean, I have no inside information, but I think if he had been going to retire, he would have retired. Because typically, um, a justice will either announce plan of retirement uh, in late April, which is when the court finishes its argument sessions, or at the very end of the term, as Anthony Kennedy did uh, in, in 2018. And of course, the other two recent you know, vacancies were caused by death, Justice Scalia's death and Justice Ginsburg's death. Um, so he would have done it the last day of the term, which was last Thursday. I think now, I mean, I'd just be shocked because you know, motivation for giving the president advance notice is that you can get somebody seated by the time the court comes back into session on the first Monday in October. So um, do I think that the, the liberal beating up on Breyer caused him not to retire? Again, I don't know anything, but I think that's possible that it backfired because it made it seem like such a political act. It kind of even if in Breyer's mind it would not have been a political act. I mean, the man is 82 years old. He's been on the court for, my math is terrible, but I think he went on the court in 1995. Uh, he's entitled to retire, but it would look so political that it may have pushed him back. So again, I, I don't know. It's it's so interesting, because I, I wonder if if the people on the court who have been there for quite some time, they've obviously seen that it has become a very political place and very highly politicized amongst all of Washington and all of America, really. I guess I can't imagine he wouldn't be thinking, well, yeah, it's political. That's part of the gig. And if I don't go, then something else political is going to happen. In maybe in a maybe in a year or so in a couple of years. <laughs> you know, you never know. I mean, again, it'd be very presumptuous of me to try to read Stephen Breyer's mind. He's a very smart person, and um, you know, he made the decision that was right for him. Whether it's right for the court of the country, uh, you know, history will judge. There's another question that we've gotten uh, a couple different times, and it, it is very much a political question. It has to do with the question of, of court packing, about whether or not the the Democrats or Republicans, for that matter, if they were to gain control of Congress in such a way that they could actually do something like this, would be incentivized to increase the number of Supreme Court justices so that they would create either, if it was Republicans, a permanent majority, more or less, or if it was Democrats, balance things out once again so that there's not a permanent conservative majority. How do you view that idea as, as political, clearly, as it is? Oh, you know, I understand it and the extreme frustration of um, the stolen seat that should have been President Obama's to fill, that, that McConnell blocked for 10 months. Um I've been agnostic on a lot of these ideas, so I don't actually have a very fixed view of it. Um, uh, you know, the president has this commission with 36 very smart people. Um, 
on it they were going to come up with some consensus idea i guess and um i got i think a lot of people got an invitation to submit whatever ideas i might have to the commission and i actually did not accept that invitation because <laughs> um it's just not something that i have a very i'm not confident that i have a a, a, a good view one way or the other on, on that I, i'll just follow up with you on that just because it it I guess I'm wondering if you feel as though having 11 justices or 15 justices would irrevocably change something about the way the Supreme Court of the United States functions. And I'm not asking you to put a value judgment on it, but more just how do you think that would change what the Supreme Court is and what it does if you added if you added a few more justices to it? Oh, I don't think I don't think if you went from nine to eleven, it would make a big change. Um, you need a place for them to work, but that's another issue. Um, you know, if you start going to fifteen, um, no, I think I think it becomes uh, they'd have to start sitting in panels like the like the appeals courts do. I mean, I think a, an interesting change actually would be not to grow the court but to shrink the court to an even number of justices, which was the original plan. Uh, you know, the, the first Supreme Court, which was built by George Washington, uh, had, had six. Um, the number of justices had changed, I think, seven times over the country's history, although not, not recently. But um, during the year uh, after Scalia died, when, uh, you know, when uh, President Obama was blocked from filling that vacancy and they only had eight, um, the court really did seem to be trying to reach consensus on a number of things. That did change the dynamic. And, um, you know, whether it would be eight or 10 or, you know, six or whatever. Um, you know, if I were kind of redesigning the court, I would give serious thought to, to an even number of justices. See, that's the kind of answer I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for the if Linda Greenhouse could redesign the court answer, and I that that in a lot of ways makes a lot of sense. And I I'll just ask you to quickly expand upon that for another second. Are there other ways in which the court could be altered in some way that would make for a better democracy, make for a better outcome for all of America, not in a partisan way, but but just make it work better? Well, one other idea that is kind of floating around is. Um, Suppose there was a requirement that before the court invalidated an act of Congress, uh, it could only do so by a supermajority, by, you know, six out of nine. So you wouldn't have five to four to strike down Obamacare or whatever. And, um, you know, I think Congress has the power to do that. The Constitution gives Congress a lot of power uh, over the court's jurisdiction and, and procedures. Um, so, you know, that's, I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Um, and then, of course, you know, people talk about term limits. Because uh, life, life tenure for high court judges is very, very unusual in the world. In fact, it's unique in the world, as far as I know. Um, of course, that's not a, that's not a fix for uh, the, the current problem as, as perceived by Democrats, because you couldn't cut off the terms of the incumbents. And so you're talking you know, long-term kind of rolling fix, assuming it could be done by legislation at all, which is a big debate. 
you're going to need a constitutional amendment. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting talking point, but it's not a practical solution to the current set of problems. You, you mentioned Obamacare, so I'll ask about that. They didn't strike down Obamacare again. Is that about the end of the attempts to take Obamacare or some version of Obamacare to the Supreme Court and have it be invalidated? I kind of think so, but uh, I would have thought so the last time, too. <laughs> uh, you know, the political dynamic has changed, so there's really, I mean, people like Obamacare, so there's really nothing in it for the Republicans to keep demonizing it and undercutting it. And if anything, I think the public wants, wants to beef it up and make it more robust. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's probably over. Can you talk about the, the California case that, that has to do with um, political contributions and whether or not we get to know who's making those political contributions and what do you think the ramifications of that case are? I think they're large. Um, you know, this is part of what Justice Kagan calls the weaponization of the First Amendment. So... The claim is there's a First Amendment right of association that is impaired if you have to disclose uh, who you are in making a, a charitable contribution. And, um, uh, you know, this was not a, a, a case about politics, but it was a case about the Constitution. And the Constitution would apply, it seems to me, uh, to disclosures for political contributions, too. These were contributions for uh you know, 501c3 uh, charities. So, you know, part of the, if you remember Citizens United, which I suspect people do, uh, part of the deal there was uh, the court said, well, um, uh, we can't stop the flow of money because people have a First Amendment right to spend money in politics, but at least uh, they'll be disclosed. Um, now it looks like maybe not, or quite likely not. So that's something the political system is going to be dealing with. That's, that's the whole dark money um, problem. Now, I have to say we already have a dark money problem because if you look on um, uh, the IRS Form 990 for any nonprofit, and I look at those because I hear about some outfit and I think, you know, okay, so what do they do with their money and where do they get their money? You really can't tell the answer to any of those questions. Um, so uh, we're already living in an age of dark money, and it's just going to get uh, bigger and darker, I think, because mm -hmm. of this. Uh, Sarah Stroud asked a question that I think we, we talked about a little bit, but I'd love for you to talk about because um, I was very interested in this when we talked last year. She says, I remember you talking on last year's broadcast about changing jurisprudence around religion as a major goal of ch the Chief Justice. Can you talk about how that advanced and moved on this year? Last year, uh, when Lynn and I talked, you, you talked about the Roberts Project having to do with religion. And as we started our conversation tonight, we did talk about the importance of religion. But maybe you can bring that up again and the, the John Roberts influence on the religion project, as you talked about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that this is a case where I think he has been a bit out of flank to his right by people that have an even bigger religion project than, than he does. So, uh, so, you know, the question is how society evaluates um, religious claims that create 
third party harm people that don't share those religious beliefs. I mean, that's, I think that's really where the, where the rubber meets the road. So that was the Hobby Lobby case, you know, Mr. Hobby Lobby saying, I can't possibly go along with uh, including contraception in my uh, health plan. And, and he, he got away with that. So as a result, the women working there don't have the right to, uh, that was granted by Obamacare to all women uh, to have their birth control covered by their employee health plan. That's what I mean by the third party harm. So uh, there's been this big push on to overturn a decision, a, a 1990 president called Employment Division against Smith. That seemed to be what the court was going to be about this term. Uh, Employment Division against Smith said that um, uh, when, when you've got a law, a, a neutral law of general applicability, that is say a law that was not passed to impair religion at all, just a law, uh, you don't have a religious right, a free exercise right under the First Amendment to an exception. That's been the law. Um, that was law before, actually, but it's been the law uh, under Employment Division against Smith. So the court did not, in fact, overturn Employment, against, employment Division against Smith in the case that it decided this term, a case called Fulton. That, I think, misled a lot of people into saying, oh, okay, the court didn't do it. So, you know, they didn't do much. As I read that case in combination with the COVID capacity cap cases on, on uh, communal religious worship, what I see is a, a situation now where you don't have to overturn employment division against Smith. You have already elevated religion to the extent that any difference in how religion is treated, a difference between religion and the secular treatment. Oh, you're, you're capping church attendance, but you're not capping uh, you know, the grocery store. And that's discrimination. What the court did this term was uh, expand the, what I would call the sort of common sense notion of what is, what is discrimination on the basis of religion made it basically everything as long as there's a jot of difference between how religion and non-religion is treated. So, um, and once that happens, then the government is put to a very difficult, what's called strict scrutiny. Uh, they have to show that uh, it, this difference is serving a compelling interest in as narrow a way as possible. Um, and that's why the, uh, the church won in the Philadelphia case, uh, the way uh, Chief Justice Roberts interpreted the contract to be um, not, a, not a contract of general applicability. So it was really kind of in the weeds, but I think we're going to be living with um, even more than in the past, the kind of um, elevation of religious claims above the other claims that uh, are part of civil society. And is the expectation that we will also see the court um, assuming that more people's religious claims are indeed valid religious claims, because certainly within the political media, we've seen a number of, of cases that have come up over the course of the last several years in which people are claiming religious rights. And if you look into it pretty closely, it's not really religious rights that they're claiming. It's something else. But using religion allows you a new latitude, it seems, within American society. Well, I think that's part of it. And also um, uh, part of it's not 
not that subtle. So the court actually has accepted for argument and decision in the next term. Another case about uh, channeling public money to religious schools. And, uh, you know, if you move back, you know, decades ago, this was a, an issue that was fought out over, you know, textbooks or buses or supplies or this, that, or the other thing. And now it's just frontally out there. Uh, you know, there's a tuition assistance program in the state of Maine, and you cannot limit it to uh, secular schools. Religious schools have the you know, exact same right to uh, to feed at the public trough. And that's, thing, you know, really radical um, in, in terms of our, our cultural history. But the court has gone so far down that road that there's almost nothing surprising about that inevitable outcome anymore. And, you know, it just seems to me it would behoove us all to take a deep breath and think about that. Maybe we think that's great. But it's kind of happened on our watch, and um, and I think it just has a lot of implications about, um, as I say, civil civil society and who gets to who gets to call the shots, uh, the secular forces or the religious forces. We just have a few minutes left, and I, I want to look ahead a little bit to to next term, and we have a bit so far. You've mentioned some of the cases that are going to be on the docket for the the court next session. With abortion, with Second Amendment rights being at the the headline, it seems as though it might be one of the most contentious court sessions of all time. Well, I think so. And you throw in religion and you throw in maybe affirmative action. And um, yeah, it could be pretty head spinning. We, we, we could emerge a year from now into um, you know quite a different world. Well, what is the specific challenge to Roe versus Wade as the law of the land that we see coming in the fall or next year at this time. Yes, this is a case from Mississippi. Um, it's, it's a challenge to a law that uh, uh, prohibits abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, you know, pregnancy is 40 weeks and uh, uh, law since Roe against Wade has been that um, before the point of fetal viability, a woman has an absolute right to terminate a pregnancy. Um, you can make her jump through a whole bunch of hoops. You can have a waiting period. You can have mandatory counseling. You can, you know, make her stand on her head for three days or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's her choice. So you've got a 15-week ban. Uh, viability is um, 23 weeks, 24 weeks. So you're talking about several months later. Um, if the court were to uphold that law, and of course the lower court had to strike it down because it's flagrantly unconstitutional under current law, but if the Supreme Court were to change current law and get rid of the viability firewall that protects the right to abortion when, uh, when basically all abortions take place, um, there'd be no stopping point. So Texas has just passed a law that uh, bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, a time which many women don't even know they're pregnant. Um, it could go down and down and down. and. Um, uh, there would quickly be nothing left to the right to abortion as a federal matter. Before we, we leave, can you just give me a, a minute or so on, on the book that you have upcoming in the fall, Justice on the Brink, uh, based around the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the way that the court has has transformed over the course of the last year? So it's a, it's a chronicle of the term that just ended. This was my pandemic project. Um, and I've chronicled, I, I, the book chronicles month by month 
on what happened, uh, not case by case, but kind of theme by theme, uh, chronologically, and, um, uh, and that's what it is. And, and so it's kind of my quite, it's not, a, I don't tell it in the first person, but it's obviously my uh, view as to um, uh, the significance of what's, of what's been occurring. <clears throat> a lot of what we've, we've talked about tonight um, my challenge now is to kind of wrap it up into the last chapter. That's what I'm up to. Has this been the most momentous year of your life in covering the court? I mean, after 40 years of covering the court? Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but it certainly has been a fascinating one. And, uh, you know, one that nobody would have anticipated with this one-term president having made three Supreme Court appointments. So, you know, a big deal. Linda Greenhouse, of course, the longtime writer and reporter for the New York Times. Her book, as as I said, is coming out later on this year. It's called Justice on the Brink. Linda Greenhouse, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for answering all of the questions from our audience, and thanks for supporting the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks, John. My pleasure. You can hear part one of our conversation with Linda Greenhouse on our last podcast, where we go a bit more in depth on what Linda calls the Roberts Court's Religion Project. And you can watch the whole thing at ctmirror.org slash events. Thanks so much to Kyle Constable and Bruce Potterman for their help producing this episode. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided the steady beats, and they were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.